Good afternoon, everyone. In the late 1980s and early 90s, leaders in a Church of God fellowship called the Worldwide Church of God over a period of time cast off one biblical doctrine after another, exchanging them for shop-worn falsehoods borrowed from apostate Christianity. As part of that process, a booklet was published entitled God Is. The booklet was a rehashing and pseudo-intellectual language of the doctrine of the Trinity that came out of pagan philosophical speculation about God's nature. The ponderous tome was a mishmash of confusion, of misleading statements, ignoring many scriptures touching on the subject of God's nature and flatly contradicting others. Hence, it did not mesh with scripture, and it certainly did not enlighten anyone's understanding. Rather, its teachings obscured an understanding of many significant scriptures or rendering or rendered them meaningless. The attempt to explain God's nature by the Trinity doctrine is not only not the simplest way to account for all the facts available, but is admittedly unintelligible even to its proponents. What excuse is given for promoting a doctrine full of logical fallacies and contradictions? The excuse is, as stated in another Worldwide Church of God publication at the time, quote, a true God or the true God exists in a way that is beyond our finite understanding, end quote. In other words, <clears throat> we really don't know much about God and we don't think it's possible to know much about God, but you need to accept our nonsensical assertions about God's nature because we say so. And that is pretty much the idea that has been promulgated regarding the Trinity doctrine by those who have uh, propagated it. The question is, is it true that you can't know much about God? Is God's nature so shrouded in confusion and mystery that we can't have a fair understanding of his nature and of his person? What can we know about God and how can we know it? What can we know about God and how can we know it? That's what I want to discuss in today's sermon. Jesus said in Matthew 10 and verse 26, Matthew 10 and verse 26, there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. We are assured in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 10, 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 10, that the scriptures, the spirit, I should say, searches all things. Yes, the deep things of God. The spirit searches all things. Yes, the deep things of God. Now, if the spirit searches all things, including the deep things of God, then that would lead us to the conclusion that we can, with the help of the Holy Spirit, know a lot about God, wouldn't it? Jesus Christ said he could reveal the Father, that is God, to our understanding. In Luke 10 and verse 22, Luke 10 and verse 22, 
Jesus said, no one knows who the Son is but the Father, and who the Father is but the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Now, the, the word for him is not in the original Greek. And what this is telling us is that the Son can reveal both who he is and who the Father is. Jesus Christ can reveal to us who he is and he can reveal who the Father is. But at the same time, Scripture tells us that the revelation is not yet complete. It is not yet complete, but it will be complete in the resurrection. As we read in 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 12, 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 12, we, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then, that is in the resurrection, face to face. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. So we can know a lot about God, but the revelation that we have in this age, in this lifetime, is not going to be complete. And it will not be in, until the resurrection that we have that complete and total knowledge of God. When we will know God as we are known by God now. And as is implied in this scripture, God shows us himself now by way of analogy as an image in a mirror. Now you might think about an image in a mirror for a uh, a moment. <clears throat> An image in a mirror can tell us quite a bit about the subject. It can give us a very good uh, sense of the general outline, shape, and form. But it lacks the full dimensions of the real object, being for one thing on a flat plane. Much less does it give us the sense of fully experiencing the nature of what is shown in the glass. In 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 12, 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 12, it says, Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech, unlike Moses who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. Now, you might remember that when Moses came down off the mountain where he had been with God, receiving the commandments, his face shone with a bright radiance, reflecting the glory of God. And it was so brilliant that, the, that Moses had to put a veil over his face because those who looked at him otherwise would have been blinded from the brilliance of his countenance. And <clears throat> so Paul is saying that Moses put a veil over his face that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away, that 
that brilliance faded after a, a time. But Paul goes on to tell us of the Israelites, it says, their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. What he's saying is that although the Israelites were given the scriptures, the understanding of the scriptures was largely hidden from them as something being hidden by a veil. They didn't really fully understand the scriptures they were given, most of them. And he still goes on to say in verse 15, even to this day when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. In other words, what he's saying is when one truly repents, then that veil that hides or conceals the understanding of the scriptures from one's mind is removed. It goes on to say in verse 17, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, speaking now of those converted, those for whom the veil no longer remains, hiding the understanding of God's Word, it says we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now, Adam Clark's commentary comments as follows on these verses. It says, quote, by earnestly contemplating the gospel of Jesus and believing on him who is its author, the soul becomes illuminated with his divine splendor. For this sacred mirror reflects back on the believing soul the image of him whose perfections it exhibits. And thus we see the glorious form after which our minds are to be fashioned and by believing and receiving the influence of his spirit, uh, metha, metamorpho metha, which is uh, a Greek word, our form is changed into the same image which we behold there. This is the image of God. Now this word metamorphothema, uh, morphometha, excuse, excuse me, I should say, metamorphometha, is uh, the word from which we get the English words metamorphos or metamorphosis, which means to change. 
to, to it's uh, it's uh, the word used for the metamorphosis of the uh, larva of a butterfly when it changes from that form into a completely different form from a worm, so to speak, into a completely different kind of creature, uh, an insect that has wings and can fly. And so as we look into the Word of God and with the Holy Spirit working in us, what is being said here is that we uh, undergo a change, a change in nature. And this is from reading the scriptures with understanding with and with the influence of the Holy Spirit. Barnes New Testament notes on these verses says the idea is that God was clearly and distinctly seen in the gospel. Now what that tells us is that one of the keys to understanding God, a major key, an essential key to understanding God, is the word of God. the scriptures, the Old and New Testaments. The mirror through which we now see God is his word. It's not the word of some philosopher or the imaginations of human beings. It is the word of God. That's how we can come to understand and see God, understand what God is like, who God is. In 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 3, 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 3, it says, even if our gospel is veiled, notice he's talking about the gospel, the message of God's word, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age is blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Notice how he characterizes the message of God's word, the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God should shine on them. That, that implies that through the gospel, we can see the glory, the power, the nature of Jesus Christ. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves, your bond servants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The light that shines out of darkness and reveals to us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ is the word of God. The gospel proclaimed by the apostles included the Old Testament scriptures. In fact, these were the only scriptures available during much of the apostolic era of the New, uh, of the New Testament church. 
Of course, the scriptures of the New Testament, as they were made available over the decades of the first century, increased the understanding of God and of his purpose and how he is working it out. So we have, we have the benefit not only of the Old Testament scriptures, but also the New Testament scriptures as well to help us understand God and his nature, to come to know God, to know about God. Not only to know about God, but to know him. <clears throat> the Old Testament or the old, the old Covenant, which included in its expanded form the books of the Old Testament, was given to reveal in a comprehensible way the glory of God and of His purpose for mankind. But a veil of carnality and rebellion hid from most of the physical Israelites the deeper understanding of God's nature and purpose. Now, some individuals, as I mentioned earlier, did comprehend, but the nation taken as a whole did not really comprehend the knowledge that, that might otherwise have been available to them in the Scriptures or from the Scriptures. But as we read, the veil is taken away in Christ. And <clears throat> as we read in Verse 18 of, of 2 Corinthians uh, 3, we with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror, the mirror being the word of God, the Bible, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. God reveals to us what he's like. And with God's Spirit working with us, we are to be metamorphosed or changed from what we were before to into the likeness of God from a, from a spiritual standpoint. <clears throat> also, those same scriptures reveal the purpose for which we were made, which is to be, to undergo that metamorphosis or that transformation. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning with verse 9, his purpose is revealed in the scriptures. It says, the things which God has prepared for those who love him, God has revealed to us through his spirit. That's in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 9 and 10. The things which God has prepared for those who love him, God has revealed to us through his spirit. And as we see in conjunction with his word. And the purpose for which we were created ties in directly with what scripture reveals to us about God's glory, about his nature. Because as we re just read, we are being transformed into the same image. If we are yielding to God and if we are being led by His Spirit, we're being changed. We're, we're growing, developing spiritually into something, someone different from what we were before and what we are by nature. 
What God has revealed is that his purpose is to make us like him. And what he is like is revealed to us in the Bible as of an image in a mirror with the same clarity and comprehension. But to see what God is like in a mirror is not to fully experience what God is like. And the full revelation awaits our resurrection, as I mentioned earlier, in 1 John 3 and verse 2. 1 John 3 and verse 2, it says, when he is revealed, meaning at, at the second coming of Jesus Christ, when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. When Christ is revealed and the saints are resurrected <clears throat> into the likeness of the fu fully into the likeness of Christ, we will see him then as he is. We will have that full revelation at that time. <clears throat> and we will fully see him, that is, understand him, know him, as he is when we become like him, more fully like him in the resurrection and not before. But what can we learn now about God's nature from looking in the mirror of his image, which is his word. Though our knowledge cannot be complete in this age or this lifetime, we can learn a great deal about God. By studying an image in a mirror, one can see the general outline or the shape of the subject. By measuring and analyzing, one can learn a lot about the proportions, the various features of the subject, and so forth. You might... Consider how telescopes, and many telescopes are just lar very large mirrors, <clears throat> but by looking into to telescopes, astronomers have learned a great deal about the universe. And in the same way, by looking into the mirror of God's word, we can learn a, a great deal about God. Now, it's been stated that we should not confuse God's nature with the created order. We should not confuse God's nature with the created order. And, of course, we should not confuse God's nature with the created order. But at the same time, we must understand that God's nature is reflected in the created order, which includes not only the stars, sun, moon, earth, and all that is in them, but that also includes specifically Israel, the old covenant, the word of God, the church. All of these reflect God's nature and teach us specific truths about it. Scripture tells us that we can learn certain things about God from what he has created. This is a principle found in the Bible and used throughout 
the Scriptures. Paul wrote in Romans 1, beginning with verse 19, Romans 1, verse 19, what may be known of God is manifest in, or it could be translated among or to them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead. Notice Paul said by examining the creation, certain invisible attributes of God can be revealed, including His eternal power and Godhead. Now, notice what this does not say. It does not say that our finite minds are incapable of understanding God's nature. In fact, just the opposite it says that His in, in, invisible attributes are clearly seen, clearly seen being understood by or through analogy with the things that are created. In Psalm 19, beginning with verse 1, Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows His handiwork. The firmament is the, the uh, basically the heavens as we gaze into the uh, atmosphere and beyond. Goes on to say, day unto day at her speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. So by gazing up into the heavens, we can learn certain things about God. And uh, actually for those who have a mind to understand the science of astronomy has revealed quite a bit about God and His glory. And of course, even without telescopes and so forth, a great deal uh, could be learned even before they were available widely about God from just looking into the heavens. But it goes on in verse 7 of Psalm 19 to say the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. So in this psalm, it starts out with the heavens declaring the glory of God, but then it proceeds on to the word of God and how it reveals to us knowledge that would otherwise be hidden from our eyes. 
The creation itself declares God's power and glory. And we've seen documentaries on some of the breathtaking wonders of creation from microscopic cells and living creatures, each cell hosting a plethora of tiny complex biological machines that facilitate the life processes within the cell to the intricacies of flight and the incredible metamorphosis of butterflies. Besides that, we can gaze into the vast universe with its uncountable stars and galaxies and wonder and amazement at the power and glory of the one who is behind it all. No series of accidents can account for these wonders, but only the existence of a superintelligent creator who created the heavens and designed and purposefully made the living creatures on the earth. And added to that is the law or the word of God. And God's law reveals a great deal about his nature, about his righteousness, his mercy, and other attributes of his nature. In Jeremiah 9 and verse 23, Jeremiah 9 and verse 23, it says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. Let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. When Philip, one of Jesus' disciples, asked Jesus to show them the Father, Jesus said, quote, He who has seen me has seen the Father, from John 14 and verse 9. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Now Jesus was known to his disciples. They had lived with him virtually on a 24-hour day basis for several years or most of that time. John wrote in 1 John chapter 1, 1 John 1 beginning with verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and, with, and was manifested to us. Now, he opened this volume with the statement, that which was from the beginning. And the uh, Greek scholar A.T. Robertson comments on this phrase, that which was from the beginning. He says, quote, the reference goes beyond the Christ Christian dispensation, beyond the incarnation to the eternal purpose of God in Christ. What they were seeing in Jesus Christ was the purpose of God for humanity being fulfilled in his person. 
the disciples had an intimate knowledge of Jesus Christ. And knowing Christ as they did enabled them to have insight into what the Father is like. And what that means is that the Father is not much different from Jesus Christ. The nature of God is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Moreover, God's dealings with the patriarchs, with Israel, with the physical kingdom, the old covenant, the priesthood, the tabernacle, and its divine services were all types, examples, copies, shadows, figures to illustrate various features of God's nature and of his purpose and plan. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning with verse 1, 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 1, it says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, and do not become idolaters as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So Israel's experiences in being brought out of Egypt and trekking through the wilderness have many lessons for us and can teach us a lot about God's nature. And one thing that is crystal clear is that God is serious about obedience to his laws. And another thing is also that God is merciful. In Hebrews 3, beginning with verse 1, Hebrews 3 and verse 1, it says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus uh, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him, who appointed him as Moses, also was faithful in all his house. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ is a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me and tried me and saw my works 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, 
they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. So we're told to avoid following the example of rebellion of the people of Israel who did not know God, who did not know his ways, even though God was manifested to them in certain respects, they did not really comprehend or understand. But those experiences reveal a lot about God, of his nature, of his, uh, you might say, philosophy of life, his approach to life, his approach to morality, to righteousness, and truth and proper behavior. The tabernacle and its ordinances were also given to teach lessons about God. In Hebrews 9, and beginning with the first one, Hebrews 9 and verse 1, then indeed even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service in the earthly sanctuary. That's the old covenant. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, and which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the ta tablets of the covenant." And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle, performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience, end quote. Now, what Paul is telling us here is that in all of these things mentioned there is deep spiritual significance. They were symbolic of things spiritual, of deep spiritual knowledge, things that have to do with God and of his nature. And together they reveal a great deal about God and his purpose and plan for mankind. By these physical parallels, types, or examples, we may gain much spiritual insight, including insight into God's nature. And with God's word as a guide, we can learn much about the creator from the created. Jesus Christ was human. And now Jesus Christ is a human resurrected from the dead. Jesus Christ is also God. By examining what the scripture reveals about Jesus Christ, we learn about the nature of God. Not only of Jesus Christ, but also of the Father and about God's purpose for us. 
So let's ask a specific question. Does the Bible reveal Jesus Christ as a person? Now, the word person, of course, is an English word, which is derived from Latin, and it is not used in the original languages of the Bible. Most any dictionary will include in the definition of person an individual personality. Each human individual is, hence, a person. Individual humans are also identified as human beings. Each individual human is a separate and distinct being. That is, one who exists, which is what the word being means. The word being simply means one who exists. Jesus Christ was and is a human being. Albeit, of course, a human being changed now into eternal spirit. But he was a human being in the flesh, and now he is a human being who has become immortal and who has the full nature of God. In Colossians 2 and verse 9, Colossians 2 and verse 9 says, In him, that is, Jesus Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Paul tells us emphatically and in no uncertain terms that the one God does indeed consist of the Father and of Jesus Christ. He said he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning with verse 4, we know that there is no other God except one. And then in verse 6 he said, of this one God, to us, one God, the Father of whom all things and we for him and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things and we by him. Here's the biblical definition of the one God. The one God consists currently of the Father and of Jesus Christ. Notice it does not add a third person. The one God, the Godhead, is currently made up of two personalities, two beings, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what constitutes the Godhead. There's only one God or one Godhead, but within that Godhead currently are two separate persons, two separate beings, the Father and Jesus Christ. The Godhead is a compound unity, like a family. You can have one family, but more than one member of the family. And one, the one God is the same way. God is a family, and within that family called God is currently a father and a son. Now, Jesus, as a human being on the earth, had a will. Hence, he had a mind in harmony with the fathers and yet separate. Jesus said in Luke 22 and verse 42, he said to, uh, to the father, he said, not my will, but yours be done. 
not my will, but yours be, be done. That implies two separate wills and hence two separate beings. Jesus is rewarded with supreme exaltation because he humbled himself obeying God to the point of dying on the cross. And we're told to follow his example. In Philippians 2, beginning with verse 5, Philippians 2 and verse 5, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, being the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, <clears throat> and being found in appearances of man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now we might notice here that God underwent a metamorphosis, you might say one in reverse, in the person of Jesus Christ, who was God, and he became a human being. As it says, in the likeness of man. And he became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him, given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus said in John 8, beginning with verse 17, John 8, verse 17, it is written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am the one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Now implicit in this statement is that the Father and Jesus are two independent witnesses. Now, if they were the same being, which is alleged in the Trinity doctrine, if they were the same being, there would be only one witness. But Jesus said he and the Father are two, comparable to two men witnessing independently to establish the truth in a trial. So we see that God the Father and Jesus Christ are two separate beings, two separate entities, individuals, personalities. And to get together, they constitute the Godhead. Now the Bible tells us that we can have an intimate personal relationship with God now, even in this lifetime. We can have a, an intimate personal relationship with God now. As we read in 1 John 1 and verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The 
disciples of Jesus Christ had an intimate personal relationship with him. And John said we could share that same intimate relationship with the Father and with Jesus Christ. Now, how can we have that fellowship with God? How can we have that fellowship with God that we're told we can have? Well, we can have it by studying God's Word, the Bible. We can have it by also, in addition to that, imitating Jesus Christ. Learning about Jesus Christ and learning to imitate or follow His example, walk in His footsteps. And also by praying to God daily communing with God on a daily basis. And on top of that, by having faith in God and obeying His commandments. And of course, all of this goes together. In 1 John 2 and verse 3, 1 John 2 and verse 3, John said, Now by this, we know that we know Him. How can you tell if you know God and have a relationship with Him? It's not that difficult. It says, now by this, we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. He who says, I know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this, we know that we are in Him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. You can test yourself and your knowledge of God by looking, examining yourself and asking yourself, <clears throat> am I living up to the standard of God's word? Am I keeping his commandments? Am I walking just as Christ walked? And to the extent that you are, then you know God. We can learn what God is like now and we can share His nature in a limited way. And if we are doing that, we can later become fully like God in the sense of sharing His divine nature, just as we now have human nature. Peter wrote in... 2 Peter 1 and verse 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Notice what he says here. He says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Those who authored the scriptures did not believe that the knowledge of God is something that is hidden from our eyes, it's, nor that we uh, cannot comprehend and understand what God is like. 
Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. Through the knowledge of him. Yes, we can have knowledge and we should have knowledge of God. by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. We can be partakers of the divine nature, not mere human nature, but of the divine nature, the nature of God. Jesus Christ was, as we read in Romans 1 and verse 4, he was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. As Jesus Christ is the Son of God resurrected to eternal life and glory in the kingdom of God, so we may be also after his likeness. We read in Revelation 21 and verse 7. Revelation 21 and verse 7. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning with verse 20. Now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. So, those who are converted now in this age are to be resurrected from the dead at Christ's coming. And they will be resurrected as Christ was into the likeness of God, sharing the divine nature. We read in Philippians 3 and verse 20, Philippians 3 and verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. When you're resurrected, you're not going to be resurrected into the same body you have now. Those resurrected in that resurrection will not be flesh and blood. They will be eternal spirit beings who share the nature of God and who have bodies conformed to the glorious body of Jesus Christ. In 1 John 3 and verse 1, 
First John 3 and verse 1, it says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. The world does not know God. We can know God, but the world does not know God. Goes on to say, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. What he's saying is that we don't have the full revelation yet because we haven't experienced yet what we will be fully. But what we do know is when Christ is revealed, we will be like him. And we will then see him as he is. We will fully understand what God is like. And everyone who has this hope in him, John continues, purifies himself just as he is pure. End quote. God's spirit coupled with God's word gives us a window into the very mind of God. Without God's spirit, our knowledge of God is rudimentary at best. But Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 2, beginning with verse 11, 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 11, what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who, or more accurately, it would be translated which, is from God that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but that which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because... They are spiritually discerned. And then it continues in verse 16. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. End quote. We have the mind of Christ. With the Holy Spirit guiding us, enlightening us, we can in a limited way, have the very mind of God, the mind of Jesus Christ. As long as we are human, there will always be more we can learn about God. But we do not need to be ignorant of God or of His nature. We can come to know Him now. We can begin to become like Him now. And we can ultimately be fully like God as sons in his kingdom if we repent of our sins and remain faithful to him.